We're going to begin in chapter 11 of Hebrews, in verse 29 instead of 28, uh, to go on to the next one. Uh, the next segment, I said earlier on before I started this chapter that I wasn't going to spend too long in it. I lied again, as usual. Uh, but anyway, hopefully maybe one more week, we'll see how, uh, how I'm able to deal with this passage and go from there. But we're going to start in verse 29. If you didn't notice this morning, um, the first hymn that we sang um, was actually one of the oldest hymns in our hymn book, written way back in the 8th century. B.C. Uh, so not all of our songs are contemporary. Always know that. That uh, 8th century is far from contemporary as you can get. It was written by a man by the name of John of Damascus. And it's an Easter hymn, but you'll notice uh, it, it ties in with this, uh, the joy that was uh, expressed by the Israelites uh, once they had crossed over the Red Sea, the Song of Moses. And it transitions into the same song that we sing as Christians of the resurrection of Christ, but it also has a couple of hints, uh, notes about winter and how winter is fading. So I just thought that I'd throw that in there for you uh, as you look forward to the spring that's to come. Hear the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 29 through 31. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we hold the Word of God in our hands and as we have heard it read to us, we, we pray, Lord, that we would be able to meditate upon Your Word, we would be able to meditate upon this concept of faith, and that we would continue to see evidence of that same faith dwelling within us, faith that is demonstrated through works, through obedience, and many other ways in which uh, we see that we are walking with the Spirit of God. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see some evidence of that, but that also we might be encouraged uh, through the testimony of the saints prior to us in a number of ways in which they, they loved you and trusted you and walked according to the promises of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, first Karate Kid movie that came out in 1984, I did not realize this, but it was actually based upon a true story. Uh, the uh, screenwriter, his name is Robert Kamen, uh, when he was 18, 17 years of age, was beaten up by a gang of bullies and began, began to take karate in order to defend himself. And uh, his teacher was a Japanese man who didn't speak any English. And uh, he learned uh, some life lessons from him in a very unusual way. But, of course, in the movie, the teacher actually does speak English and, and actually helps him quite a bit to grow up as a man as well as to learn to defend himself. But if you remember, in order for uh, Daniel, who was the main character in the story, in order for him to accept the training from his teacher, from his master, he has to agree from the very beginning not to ask any questions, but to do whatever he's told. And so Daniel agrees to do whatever Mr. Miyagi tells him, right? And, and for those of you who haven't heard the story before, basically the first day he shows up for training, he's expecting to do some karate chops and things of that nature. Instead, immediately Mr. Miyagi has him waxing all the cars in his, on his property. 
which he does, and he does it all night long. He's very particular about how he's to do it, waxing with one hand and then waxing off with the other hand. Uh, again, if you know it, uh, you, you know what I'm talk talking about. But by the time he finally finishes all the cars, it's evening. It's too late to give any legitimate karate lessons, so he says, come back next morning. And he does, and immediately he tells him, okay, now I want you to paint the fence. Third day he comes, I want you to sand my deck. And the fourth day, uh, he leaves a note for him as he's gone fishing saying, I want you to paint my house. And uh, as you can imagine, the, the young man named Daniel is irate at this point because he's like, well, you promised to teach me karate. You've been manipulating me this whole time, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Immediately, Mr. Miyagi uh, tells him, you know, wax, wax the car, wax on. And uh, he throws a punch at, at the young man. And immediately the young man's able to defend himself, and then he says, paint the fence and sand the floor. Each time it's some sort of defensive move, right? And so uh, we see the wisdom of this old man showing uh, Daniel that he's been teaching him karate the whole time in a very strange and unusual way, uh, in somewhat of a painful way, because he went through a lot of work to get to this point. Well, in a similar way, I do think that what we often see in the Old Testament narrative, especially um, in, in relationship to Israel, the Lord is constantly commanding them to do things that seem very unusual, unexpected, and painful to them, and yet the Lord is teaching them something about faith. He's not teaching them the karate, but something about faith, and they don't understand it at first, and yet, nevertheless, the Lord says, trust me, do what I command, I'm the Lord, listen to what I'm saying. And, and we see this again and again throughout uh, the Old Testament, but particularly um, in our passage this morning, as the writer of Hebrews has been continuing to show us one example of faith after another, he's transitioned from Moses all by himself now to the people of Israel and, and their faith and some very practical examples of what faith looks like. But you'll notice in this chapter that he skips over all of the times in which Israel is not expressing faith. In other words, all the times they're doubting and walking in faithlessness. And so he skips all that and immediately goes on to the next segment. So you'll, you'll see in our text this morning, author, uh, is he, he's showing three more examples of faith from the time of Israel's exodus from Egypt to the time that Israel actually enters into the promised land. And we'll see it's that second generation of Israelites who are entering into the promised land. But he skips over 40 years of history in between those two moments. And the reason he does that is because if you remember earlier on when we were studying uh, the, the, the first few chapters of Hebrews, he continues to use that generation that died in the wilderness not as an example of faith, but as an example of God's judgment upon those who do not have faith. And so he skips them all together and instead gives us three snapshots of faith from that general period of time. And so I want us to look at those three snapshots together this morning to learn something about how faith works. So in the first picture that he shows us, I want us to see something about how faith waits for the Lord. And then in the second picture, I think we can learn something about how faith moves forward according to God's word. And then in the third picture, how faith obeys the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a very strange phrasing that I'm giving you there, but it is a biblical phrasing, and I want to explain it to you further when we get to that. But let's, let's start with number one. How faith waits for the Lord. 
If you look at verse 29, there the author of Hebrews says, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Now we know the Egyptians didn't believe, right? That makes common sense. But you have to also understand that the majority of the Israelites didn't believe either. In fact, if you read the text in the Old Testament, Exodus 14, verses 11 and 12, right before the Lord opens up the Red Sea, they're already complaining and grumbling in great fear, and they say to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in this wilderness? Is not this what we said to you all along in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve them than to die here. That's literally the words that came out of their mouth. So not really great evidence of faith. So why in the world would he say this then? What the, the, first of all, you have to understand, the Lord purposely trapped Israel. He purposely wedged them in between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea so that there would be no escape. He purposely brought them to the most defenseless posture, the most vulnerable position that any group of people could ever face. If, if you've ever read The Art of War by Sun Tzu, he would say this was the worst possible choice that any army or any group of people could ever have chosen because they chose in the hemmed-in ground. That's literally the phrase that uh, the original author uses. They, they chose hemmed-in ground. There's no way you can win in that situation. And yet the Lord purposely commands Moses to take them to this type of ground in which they would be utterly defenseless. And so when they see the Egyptian horde coming over the horizon, they're scared to death. And the reason why they're scared to death is because the majority of them don't have faith. They don't believe that God, the Lord, is my salvation, as we sang earlier in our song this morning. Eventually, all the Israelites would cross over the Red Sea, but I'd, I'd say to you that most of them did not cross by faith. Most of them crossed by sight. Once they saw the waters part and the walls of water on both sides, they went along with the rest of them, just as the Egyptians did. The Egyptians were willing to risk it as well and go through that body of water. Of course, it didn't work out for them. But I'd say to you, I think what the author of Hebrews is pointing out here is the faith of Moses, certainly the faith of Caleb and Joshua, and perhaps some others who also would have repented in the wilderness after their grumbling and complaining was over with. But the vast majority of them did not believe in this way. It's interesting, as we read in our devotionals this week, again, if you're following along with our Bible reading calendar, Deuteronomy chapter 8, the Lord purposely, this is how it reads, Moses says, the Lord purposely let you hunger in the wilderness. In other words, he purposely led you to a place in the middle of nowhere where there was no food on purpose. Why? So that he could teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. So in the same way, the Lord purposely leads Israel to this defenseless position to have the Egyptian army surround them so that they would learn to fear the Lord and not man. That they would learn to wait upon the Lord to be their salvation to be their deliverance. It's amazing how many times in Scripture we are commanded to wait for the Lord. I mean, if you just look at the Psalms alone, hundreds of times, it keeps saying, wait, 
Wait upon the Lord. Wait for the Lord. A, a couple examples. It says, take courage. Wait upon the Lord, for he is our help. He is our shield. He is our defender. He is our deliverer. Do not fret yourself over the one who carries out evil desires against you, but be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Put your hope in him. He is your help. He will help you. Now certainly you can see why the author of Hebrews would have chosen this particular example in Israel's history because we're, again, beginning to see this generation during the time of the writer of Hebrews is writing. They are beginning to face persecution for the first time. Or actually the second time, the earlier time there was another one. But they're they're beginning to face a little bit more persecution. And Again, what is the, the, the ongoing encouragement that's given to the people of God when persecution is facing them? Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Take courage. The Lord is your salvation. The Lord is your deliverer. Of course, we often think about waiting upon the Lord in terms of his answering our prayers. And, and, and sometimes it could be, you know, we've prayed for a, a wide variety of things and we're waiting upon the Lord to give us the answer for what we've asked but, but notice in this particular case, this idea of waiting upon the Lord is, is waiting for the Lord's judgment upon those who are seeking our harm. Now, uh, this is not a thought I think that most people in America think about too often probably, uh, but what they're undergoing at this point are, is an aspect of persecution in which there are people that are wanting to do them harm. They're wanting to do them evil. And the command of God is not to return evil for evil but to wait upon the Lord, to leave these matters in God's hands, wait for his judgment. A number of the Old Testament prophets continually speak of the same concept of waiting upon the Lord and his judgment. Uh, For instance, Isaiah 51, verse 5, the Lord says, Wait, my righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. My arms will judge the peoples. Overall message, wait. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8, the Lord says, Wait for me for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, and to pour out upon them my indignation, my wrath, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. Now, you'll notice if you read the New Testament carefully, they pick up on the same theme. They keep referring to the day of Christ as the day of judgment a day of deliverance, a day of salvation for God's people, not only from their sin, but also from their enemies. Listen to what Peter has to say in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. He says, this is a day that believers look forward to. He says, the, the believers are waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. He's referring to a day of judgment which finally God's perfect justice is seen on earth. His judgment is known here, even as we long for the new heavens and the new earth, a day in which we can clearly see that King Jesus is reigning. But that also means that all of his enemies are brought to justice, especially when God's people are under attack. This is something that we have to know by faith not to take things into our own hands, not to seek revenge, not to go after those who have gone after us, even when it comes to personal issues. Notice the Apostle Paul, if you remember, in 2 Timothy, he's referring to a, a man by the name of Alexander. 
who is a coppersmith who has done him harm physically. And he says, he's done me great harm. And Paul says of that, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Notice, Paul's not retaliating against the man who has harmed him, who has persecuted him. Same way we, we think of that passage we've, we've mentioned a few times before recently in Revelation chapter 6. Remember, we see that image of the souls under the altar, and they're crying out unto God, saying, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Now, this sounds like a strange message for us. We have a hard time wrapping our minds around it, particularly because we're told to love our enemies, are we not? But what you have to understand is these two truths are in parallel to one another, the very reason why we can love our enemies is because we're not taking vengeance upon them. We're waiting for the Lord in his judgment. Whether the Lord chooses to save them or whether the Lord chooses to pour out his wrath upon them, either way, we're waiting upon the Lord and his salvation. We're waiting upon the Lord and his judgment. Now, thankfully, most of us haven't had to experience a lot of this type of persecution. But I'll tell you, many of our brothers and sisters around the world have. And many of your brothers and sisters in previous generations have. And even if you can't apply this immediately, I think the Lord purposely gives some of these messages to us in advance so that we can meditate upon them, so that we can pray through them, so that our hearts might be ready when a day of persecution does break out. Will we wait upon the Lord? Will we wait for the Lord's judgment against our enemies? Or will we be full of fear and full of hate and full of vengeance. Clearly, faith is seen in a different way than the way our flesh chooses to act. That's the first thing I think you can see in this text. Secondly, how faith moves forward then also according to God's Word. Again, skipping past 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, now he focuses on the second generation entering into the promised land. Uh, look, again, look at the text, verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now, if it seems strange for Israel to camp beside the Red Sea, leaving no outlet for escape, I imagine it would seem even more strange for them to march around the city seven times blowing trumpets and just expecting walls to fall down, right? That would seem a little bit unusual. And I, I imagine that it would be very difficult for... Uh, Joshua to convince the people to do such a thing in the first place. But the reason why Joshua does this is because if you remember in the previous chapter to this, the commander of the Lord's army himself comes down from heaven and reveals himself unto Joshua and assures him that the city of Jericho will be given into their hands. But he also assures him that it will happen in this way. By your marching around, blowing trumpets, and shouting. And then the walls will what? Come tumbling down. And so that's what they do. Uh, they, they trust Joshua, and by the same matter, they trust the Lord's word. And so they march around the, the city the first six times each time, once each day, having the, uh, uh, the priest carrying the uh, Ark of the Covenant, blowing trumpets, on the seventh day, they march around the city seven times, and after the trumpets are blown, 
They're told to shout with all their might. And Joshua says, for the Lord has given you the city of Jericho. Now, again, nothing's happened yet. But by faith, they obey God's command. By faith, they begin to march and to blow the trumpets and to shout, and the Lord gives them the victory. Let me ask you a question. Um, how many in here have ever felt like they weren't very good at evangelism? Let me take it back. Raise your hand if you feel like you're really good at it. I, I think most of us have felt pretty inadequate uh, at, at various points of our lives, probably much of our lives. Um, but, but if I were to tell you that um, if you were to share the gospel tomorrow and the Lord promised that the, the very first person you talked to would become saved, would you then share the gospel with them? It's like a no-brainer, right? You'd immediately do it. Well, there are times in which, like Acts chapter 18, the Apostle Paul is, is under persecution in Corinth. It's just broken out a little bit, and uh, Paul's considering moving on to the next town, but the Lord purposely tells him to stay, and, and he says, do not be afraid, Paul, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Now, what's interesting, that what he's meaning by that is not that there are already many people who have come to faith in Christ, but there are many who, who will through Paul's preaching. And so Paul stays for another year and a half in the city of Corinth, preaching the gospel because the Lord has promised that people will be given unto him through his witness. Now, what about us? Well, the Lord hasn't given us a particular promise with a particular person or a particular group of people that we talk to. And so we don't have the same assurance that Paul had in that particular instance. Nevertheless, Jesus makes a number of statements that I think give us a, a very similar sense of assurance in terms of evangelism altogether. And I think this really ties in to what Joshua has been given. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus makes a statement that's very similar to the statement that's made by the commander of the Lord's army in the book of Joshua. And the statement, both of the statements are, are promises, if you will, of victory. They're both promises that are tied into the commands that are given. You move forward, and I will do this. You walk by faith, you do this, I'll do this. And so Matthew 28, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Now, to sort of explain that in modern-day terms to us, in other words, what Jesus is saying is, every square inch of property on this planet is, is now mine. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying, it's mine. Every nation is going to be worshiping me. That's what's going to happen. It's guaranteed. It's a promise. It will happen. And, and, and in addition to that, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, now it's interesting. Uh, the same promise that is given to um, the disciples is the same thing that's given to the Israelites at the time of, of the taking of Jericho. If you remember, the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to go um, uh, leading them as they marched around the city. Now, if you remember, what is the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant? It, it's to represent the presence of God in their midst. And so the, the promise is, I will go with you, and it's through my presence, through my power, through my authority that this will happen. So in the same way that the walls come tumbling down, not because of the shouts necessarily, but because of the presence of God and the promise of God in their midst. In the same way, Jesus says, Behold, I am with you in this endeavor. I am with you always. 
even until the end of the age. But then in addition to that, he, he gives another promise early on in Matthew 16. If you remember Matthew 16, 18, he says, the very gates of hell will not stand up against the church. The very gates of hell. So if you think of the walls of the city of Jericho cannot stand before the Israelites in the Old Testament. He's saying in the same way, the gates of hell themselves cannot stand before the church. Now, if you believe that, you really believe that, would you be as afraid of witnessing? If you really believed that God goes with you as you blow your trumpet, if you will, as you're announcing the good news that the kingdom of God is here, that Christ has come, you're announcing the good news. You're not waging war in the same way the Israelites did, but even in that case, you're not picking up a sword. You're more like blowing a trumpet, <laughs> announcing the news, the good news, the gospel, and as a result, you're moving forward by faith according to God's command, knowing the truth of the matter is this, that God already owns it all. By his authority, he already has received it. Um, there's, a, there's a statement that John reveals to us in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, where he overhears the voices in heaven, and they're shouting in great celebration, and they say simply, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. He's saying it's already happened. It's already ours. Christ already owns it. What hinders us from walking forward? What hinders us from moving forward? By faith, according to God's command. That's the second example I think that we can get from this passage. Again, we're not told to march around the city just blowing trumpet. You can do that if you want, but um, literally a similar command in that regard is to go around and proclaiming the gospel of Christ and watch the gates of hell crumble around you. He's promised it will happen according to his word. Then third, faith obeys the gospel of our Lord Jesus. This is a, a third example of, of faith, but this time it's not from Israel, but rather from the enemies of Israel, if you will, at least one particular enemy that uh, the author has in mind. Verse 31, the author says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, how does welcoming the spies have anything to do with obeying the gospel? I'll explain that in a second, but first I want to consider what the spies were called to do in the first place. If you remember, Joshua had sent out the spies, just as they had been sent out in a previous generation, to go see what was in the land, to see the strengths and weaknesses and all these things. But part of the plan was to sort of do this surreptitiously, so not reveal what they're doing. Uh, so that they wouldn't be caught. Apparently, the, the spies he sent out, they weren't very good at what they were doing because immediately uh, people in the town were already reporting to the king, there are Israelites in our midst and they're spying out our land. And in the same way, Rahab knows that they are of Israel and then she doesn't have to ask them. She already knows. Everybody knows that they're there. So they've done a horrible job. And, and nevertheless, the Lord saves them because he softens the heart of this woman, Rahab. And she obeys the gospel itself. Now, we, we don't often think of the word. When we hear the words believe and repent, we don't think of those as commands. But they are commands. The king of kings has died and has risen from the grave, and now he gives the command 
believe and repent and walk accordingly. 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, the apostle says this, and this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. I'm not just asking, hey, would you guys mind if you believed in Christ? <laughs> I'm telling you as a messenger, as a herald who proclaims the command of a king, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because you will die in your sins if you do not. Repent of your sins. Turn by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. He says of, of the coming judgment of Christ, on all those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying the judgment is coming upon those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, the author of Hebrews uses the same language. He says, in reference to Rahab's faith, he's comparing her faith to the disobedience of her fellow citizens. The inhabitants who were living in the land who had heard the same news she heard but did not believe. They did not welcome the spies even though they knew that they were there. She tells the spies in, in, in chapter 2 of Joshua, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon all of us and that all the inhabitants of the land, we all melt away for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Although they had all heard this news, they did not obey the message. Rahab alone believed and thus was saved. It was this belief that led her to obey the gospel, renouncing her own people, welcoming the spies. And it's interesting the way the Scripture uh, explains this concept of welcoming God's people. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, he says, whoever receives you, receives me. So receiving the disciples who have gone out on mission. Whoever receives you, receives me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And he says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is my disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So what, what you have to understand is by Rahab receiving these spies, receiving the messengers of the people of God, she's receiving Israel's reward. You have to understand, every single person in her town was devoted to destruction. And yet, because she obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, her life was preserved. And we see that even as she identifies herself with the people of God. If you remember, they asked her to, uh, to hang that scarlet rope out the window as a, as a sign of this is the one that's to be spared. Same concept, if you will, of what happens in Israel in, in the plagues of Egypt, right? It's because they they paint the blood upon the doorpost and the lentils, saying, may the avenger not stop here and destroy those in this household. Well, in the same way, the avengers of God in terms of the Israelite soldiers did not stop at her house 
and slaughter everyone in her town, but were saved because of her faith, because she obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Later on, we see in the Gospel of Matthew that not only was Rahab considered a part of Israel, but she actually marries a very godly man in Israel whose name is Salmon, who is the father and mother of who? Boaz. You don't often think of the two together because they're in separate sections, but literally Rahab is Boaz's mother. And as a result, you know, Boaz becomes the grandfather of Jesus. Uh, clearly something has happened because she has welcomed these spies by faith. She too has been welcomed into the household of faith. Now what does that mean for us today? Well, in Jesus' day, he rebuked the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because they thought they obeyed God's commands. And yet they didn't. And he tells them, particularly in Matthew chapter 21, he says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you, you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and thus they have been saved. Um, salvation has never been based upon you keeping all of God's law. You can't do it. No matter how hard you try. Every conversation that I have with people when they're interested in joining the church, I always ask them, you know, what, what is your hope of assurance? What is your hope of salvation? What do you think you're getting into heaven? It, it's never, ever based upon you trying. Because you, you can't do it. You won't do it. Your heart doesn't want to do it. The only, uh, the only command that you can ever obey to get into heaven is simply to not look to yourself, but rather to trust the one who has kept all of God's commands, Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, trusting in Him and in His righteousness alone. He is perfect. His righteousness is given to you by faith. Every, every good thing he has done every day of his life, perfectly obeying the Father, has been given unto you if you believe in him. And every single sin that you have ever committed, whether you're a prostitute, you're a drug dealer, whatever it is that you've ever done, is then transferred to Christ. And God pours out his wrath upon him in your place. It's wonderful news. It really is. And if you don't get it, and you're still trying to do it, you're never going to, you have to obey this one command. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. When we come to the Lord's table, it's very similar to the, the woman putting out her scarlet rope. It's very similar to the Israelites putting the blood upon their doorpost from the Passover lamb. When we come here, we're coming here after the blood has been shed, right? So the, 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 the body and blood of the Lord is represented here. And so what we do is we are identifying ourselves with the people of God by faith, saying that there's no hope in us as sinners. Our hope comes completely in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And that's it. And we welcome Christ, and he welcomes us to his table to sit down as his friends, who once were his enemies, but now are his friends, only by faith. It's interesting, I just read an article, and I'll close with this, 
I read an article this last week about Albania. You know, Albania was like the greatest atheist country in the world for the longest time. Um, they were shut off to Christianity altogether. No one was allowed to have Bibles. No one was allowed to gather together as a church. There was nothing of that nature. And it's interesting, even when missionaries tried to smuggle Bibles into Albania and handed them to people, the people were so afraid that they immediately handed them to the government, and the government would hand it back to the missionary on his way out. He'd say, oh, by the way, you left these. And the missionaries would have like 50 Bibles handed back to them as they're checking out to go to, on their flight. And so the missionaries tried to get a little bit more creative, and so they started to uh, put Bibles in Ziploc bags near the coast and just sort of float them onto the coast. And again, most people wouldn't go anywhere near the beach, but a few did. Got a little bit of the gospel, understood a little bit more. And uh, one of the stories that's in the uh, magazine that I read was just simply a couple of missionaries walk onto the beach, and uh, they're wearing something that shows that they're Christian because now the country is open to Christianity, but still people are afraid. They don't know what will happen if they welcome people like this. And immediately there were three young men. One of them had received that Bible and read it. Believe the good news. And as soon as he saw those three men walk, walked up, there, please tell me more about Jesus Christ. Very similar to Rahab. I just want to know Christ. Tell me more about him. I want to identify with him. And that's all we're doing, the table here, for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. We want to live for him. That's it. Amen? Well, let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to apply this word, to uh, let it sink in deep into our soul, even though the, these examples are, are quite different than the ones that we would uh, follow in our own lives. Lord, help us to see the principles behind them of how we would evidence that faith in our own lives. We, we pray, Father, that you would increase our faith, that it would no longer be a mustard seed, uh, but would continue to grow and to produce much fruit in our life that we would see that Christ really is our all in all. He is that great pearl of price worth more than anything else that we have on earth, that we would follow him wherever he goes and welcome him, even if that means to deny our own people in order to do so. Lord, give us that kind of faith, we pray in Jesus' name.